0: Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, March 19th, and I'm your host, Andy McCabe. And before I turn it over to my intrepid co-host, I just want to throw one shout out to my nephew and his wonderful wife, who are literally in the hospital right now, Allison, having their third child, and I'm told they have decided if that child is a male child, it will be named Jack. (laughs) (laughs)
1: excellent (laughs) after jack smith or just
0: you know i'm hoping i'm gonna tell myself that that's why (laughs) they have the name jack so i'm not gonna ask because i want to be able to maintain that uh, illusion
1: well jack seems to have left an indelible mark over at the uh international criminal court we got a warrant for putin uh this morning issued by the hague and so that's that's fascinating um, and uh, the charges are legit these are war crimes the, I mean I, I wasn't expecting that this soon or from that body to be honest so no
0: and but let's say you know who knows maybe working with Jack Smith for a while those guys figured out how to go out on a ledge and, <laughs> and swing for the fence <laughs> now, that's yeah again that's how I'm gonna think about it. I can't prove that but that's uh, what I like to think
1: Yeah we're just gonna say that that's real uh, and hello, I'm Allison Gill Uh, By the way, this week, we're about to get a new chief judge for the D.C. District Court that will be overseeing Jack Smith's grand juries. Uh, We have some new insights on Trump lawyer Boris Epstein, your favorite guy, Mm -hmm. and, of course, Evan Corcoran, too. Uh, But, Andy, let's kick this off with our new D.C. District Court chief judge, James Boesberg, thanks to reporting from Zoe Tillman at Bloomberg. So this guy uh, is uh, an Obama appointee. He was sworn in. Uh, Friday, March seventeenth, and these chief judges serve seven-year terms. He'll be taking over from, as we know well by now, mm-hmm. Chief Judge Beryl Howell, right. and she's she's not retiring; she's just no longer the chief judge. She's going to go back to being a non-chief DC District Court judge.
0: So, maybe helpful for our listeners to understand how that works. Every district court around the country has one of their district court judges. Um, becomes the chief judge and is kind of the the king of all judges in that courthouse. They do a number of things uh, differently. They can still sit uh, and preside over federal trials, criminal and civil, just like any other judge, but they have other administrative responsibilities. They typically uh, oversee the assignment process. So however that courthouse uh, hands out cases to judges and magistrate judges, Uh, They're in charge of all that. And as we know from the experience in D.C., the chief judge presides over all disputes coming out of the grand jury process. The vast majority of grand juries don't have many disputes. Grand jurors are presented with evidence, and they vote to indict or not to indict a subject with a crime, and it just goes on from there. But as we know, with these wonderful cases we've been following, it seems like everything, every subpoena, every hearing... um, or at least the most significant ones, end up in some sort of a dispute over privilege or other sorts of things, and those issues end up on the desk of the chief judge.
1: Yep, and uh, Bozberg, a little more about Bozberg here. He was appointed, appointed by Obama in 2011. He was confirmed 96 to nothing in the Senate. This is back when we used to just confirm judges. Right. Um, but he's been a judge for more than two decades. He goes by Jeb, in case you're wondering. Who
0: knew? I, that I did not know about him.
1: Jeb Bosberg, former federal prosecutor, by the way, served as a presiding judge on the FISC. So he has experience handling secret court proceedings. Tell us, remind us what the FISC is, Andy. You, I, have, I don't know. Have you ever worked with anything? Uh, I've,
0: <laughs> I've, I've heard of it before. The FISC is, of course, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. That is a uh, small group of judges. They're picked from around the country, and they serve on the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And they basically decide whether or not uh, the federal government will, ha- uh, will get uh, warrants to conduct electronic surveillance in national security cases. Um, so he was on the He's very familiar with that process, with dealing with very sensitive, highly classified evidence. Uh, so he's, that's a great experience for a chief judge to have.
1: I'm assuming he didn't preside over the Fisk during the Trump era in 2016, lest he would need to recuse himself, I would imagine, from, from any Trump uh, things. I don't know. I'm just, uh, I don't, I, I'm i guessing there. Uh, and also, I don't know if they choose the chief, like how the the next chief judge is chosen. I don't know if it's seniority. It seems like seniority because they're kind of going down the order of when these folks yep. were appointed um or if there are considerations about well 98 percent of the shit you're going to see is going to be from trump cases so if you had anything to do with uh trump before maybe not but also even if he had presided uh over the fisk there i don't know that that would necessarily be a conflict of interest uh in in any of this Do you know what i mean
0: yeah. So a couple of things there. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure of uh, everything that's considered in the appointment process. Seniority is certainly part of it, but also um, general kind of health and ability. Like some of the most senior judges in any courthouse are sometimes have really been at it for a long time and they, and they some of them handle reduced loads. So you wouldn't want that in your chief judge. Um, as far as substantive uh, recusal issues, I would doubt that that's considered because they don't like to look into the future and predict what sort of cases may show up. Um, And also, there is, of course, you know, no one, uh, there's no elements of recusal for federal judges that are required. It's entirely up to every judge to make that decision in each individual case. Uh, That's something that's, um, I think, thought about by a lot of people is something that might need to change. But nevertheless, it's that's the situation we're in. And then finally, I don't think that his FISA experience would be much of a bar to presiding over cases that impact on the former president. You know, as we know from the public information, there was only one series, one FISA, uh, renewed three times, uh, that had really anything to do with Trump and the Trump campaign in 2016. And that was, of course, the Carter Page FISA Um, I just, I, I, um, I can't see how any anything that he w- saw or heard in the course of those applications, if in fact he was involved in them, and I do not know that he was. Um, I, I don't know if that. Uh, I, don't, I can't see how that would be a recusal sort of issue. Um, interestingly enough, though, he was the for a very brief period the the district court judge presiding over the Carter Page civil suit. So that's the suit that Carter Page brought against me and many of my former colleagues and many other people basically complaining about the FISA that he was subjected to. And Boesberg was the judge on that case for a very short period of time, and he did recuse from that case. And I can't for the life of me remember exactly why that was. I think he had some sort of um, personal connection to one of the lawyers involved, but I'd have to go back through the pleadings and figure that out.
1: Yeah, we don't necessarily know that it was because he presided, you know, over the surveillance um, in the in the, you know application in the Fisk Court, and it's not listed here in the, uh, the Zoe Tillman, who's great. She she put a list of some of the cases that he's recently worked on, including the FTC antitrust case against Meta, that's the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, uh, and he also presided over the foreign lobbying suit against Steve Wynn, former RNC finance chair, yep. casino mogul guy. Uh, he also ordered the draining of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and he denied Medicaid work requirements. That was a Trump-related case uh, because, you know, Trump wanted to slap work requirements on Medicaid. Uh, he threw that out. Um, he's going to be faced immediately with multiple key potential decisions, uh, as, as we have been following on this podcast, with all of these executive privilege Claims and immunity claims and but, uh, you know lawful obstruction of justice that's been going on from the, <laughs> the, from the standard
0: Trump side. Uh, the sort of obstruction that's built in we call it delay not obstruction but it's just <laughs> built into the process unfortunately
1: I should call it a defendant criminal defendant's rights but um it's it's the delay tactic uh, so we he's going to have to look at Pence's speech or debate clause argument Against his subpoena, which Pence may have just given himself a harder time with that, with his gridiron comments. Yeah. You know, saying, uh, uh, he tried to make me overthrow the government. I said, no, I can't do that. Like he just, well, okay. If you were publicly talking about all of these conversations (laughs) that you had with the president, you might find an uphill battle to try to, you know, shield those conversations with privilege. That's just one. of of multiple, there's many others.
0: Yeah, you know, and and on that one, honestly, I think that it's more important. The battle is more important than the victory to Pence, and he's looking at this through an almost exclusively political lens. Fighting the subpoena is good for him um, on the kind of far right spectrum of you know voters that he's looking for, the Trump supporters, uh, and then standing up and kind of you know trying to be independent of Trump helps him on the other side. So. We'll see. But in addition to Pence, you have Trump's claims of attorney-client privilege over Pence's uh, testimony. You have Jack Smith's contempt motion, which uh, still has not been ruled on. And that's the motion, of course, that he filed um, uh, alleging contempt on the part of the Trump lawyers with respect to the return of documents. You have Jack Smith's attempted use of the crime fraud exception to pierce attorney-client privilege for Evan Corcoran. And that's a Really interesting one. We're going to talk about that in more depth in a few minutes. And then, what else has he got on there?
1: Oh, he's got Scott Perry's speech or debate clause invocation. He's got other attorney-client privilege claims from other Trump lawyers. Uh, he he has declined to comment on the scope of the work yet to come. He, which is of course totally reasonable. Yep. Now. Uh, Judge Beryl Howe, Chief Judge Beryl Howe says she's still processing the last seven years as Chief Judge. Think about everything that's happened in the last seven years, right? Wow. Yeah. She says a lot of my work in the grand jury arena remains under seal, so it's going to be very hard to say what my legacy will be <laughs> <laughs> until after some of that work gets unsealed and people are able to evaluate it. But 2016, uh, she was presiding over the over the grand jury. She was the Chief Judge. We have uh, COVID. She was presiding yep. as chief judge. I mean, it's the everything that's happened in the last seven years, it's been a very like one of the most tumultuous seven years, I think, in the history of our country.
0: For sure. And and, you know, I, I have great uh respect for Judge Howell. And also, look, I my own personal bias as an investigator, as a as an FBI agent, member of the Department of Justice, you know, she was very investigator-friendly in many of her rulings. The ones that we know about. Now there's of course, probably plenty of cases where she went against the investigators. We just don't know about those because they're still under seal. But in the ones we know of, she always took a very strong line um, that would have permitted uh, law enforcement to get to the information that they need uh, to That's do a Scott full Perry investigation. That
1: Scott Perry ruling comes, comes straight to mind. That's right. right. Where yep. she's like, you don't have any and privilege, bro. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. <laughs> Like, get out of my face. And, and you know, it's going to be interesting to see because judges not only have to make up their own minds about stuff, but Bozberger is going to have to consider previous rulings by her uh, and take those into account as he goes forward. And the speech or debate issues that were brought up in her ruling against Scott Perry will come into play when he rules eventually on, on Scott Perry and when he rules on eventually on Pence's speech or debate. He's going to be here for seven years. So That's all right. of this will be resolved as he sits as chief judge.
0: Yeah, no doubt he's very aware of the fact that most of these highly charged political cases, um, no matter what his decision uh, decisions are on any given issue, it's fair likelihood that they'll be appealed to the D.C. Circuit the DC Circuit Court of Appeals is uh, widely seen as the most influential circuit court in the country. It's kind of a, um, it's almost like the minor leagues for the Supreme Court. Um, so he's, you know, every decision you make as chief judge in the DC District Court, which Bosburg now is, uh, you do that with the DC Circuit Court staring very closely over your shoulder and with the knowledge that cases from there frequently get sent up to the Supreme Court for final decision. So uh, yeah, he's got a lot of, a lot of pressure a lot hanging on him, but he's a solid judge. he has got a great reputation in Washington uh, in the legal community. and I don't mean as a conservative or a liberal or any of that stuff. I'm just saying in the in the legal community, he's known as a smart, effective uh, guy who runs a tight docket, gets things done. Um, so that's those are all good things for for this investigation.
1: Yeah, agreed. And um, like you said earlier, if the DOJ, if the DOJ does charge Trump in D.C., uh, that case would be randomly assigned to one of the D.C. district court judges and, and he would be part of that uh, administrative assignment. I think it's random. Um, so we would see we would see that case be assigned to one of the district court judges. It could be it could be assigned to Judge Beryl Howe. It could be assigned to a Trump-appointed judge. Sure, we yeah. just don't know. And, and I'm not really familiar with the randomization process of how those cases are assigned. Um, one parting, some parting, more parting words from Judge Beryl Howell. She says she will miss some of the daily excitement of not knowing what's walking in the door. Uh, and I just imagine like, seeing like Corcoran and Jim Trustee <laughs> coming at her like, <laughs> walking through the door. Uh, But she says she's looking forward to returning to the much more regular existence of a district judge, so...
0: Yeah, so just... you to use a medical analogy, you know, the district court judges are like, they're like the surgeon, you know, that comes in very carefully having planned out what they're doing and they apply their skills to a to a hard problem. But what she's been doing is more like the head of the ER. You're just in there, you know, you get your mask on, you're just waiting to see the door open up and see the next, like, bloody wretch that, uh, that uh, they roll down the hallway for you to fix. So... I can imagine that is a much more exciting um, existence and also probably a very trying and exhausting one. So uh, good for her. she's going back to normal duty.
1: Yes. and a big thanks uh, for her service. Again, she served as chief judge of the d c district Court during the seven most tumultuous years in recent American history. I, yep. I can I can safely say that. and I think that her legacy, even though she said it's mostly under seal <laughs> right now, uh, I think will be um, a pretty amazing one, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she isn't destined uh, for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. We have a lot more news to get to. Stick around. We'll be right back. Bum, 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 mm-hmm. ba-da.
0: Welcome back. Allison, let's talk about something new Chief Judge Boesberg will definitely have to decide, and that is Evan Corcoran's attorney client privilege claims. Um, so let, let's, before we get into Corcoran, level set the attorney client privilege. Obviously, it's the privilege between an attorney and a client, and it prevents either side from disclosing the substance of those privileged conversations. Now, of course, in order to be privileged, the conversations have to be just between the attorney and client. If anyone else is there, the privilege is waived. If the client talks about those conversations to any other person, that also can waive the privilege. In this case, what we're talking about is the crime fraud exception, which means that the privilege is waived, or as they say, pierced, if the client... And the attorney are using the privilege to commit a crime or to conceal the existence of a prior crime. So yeah. it's or, that,
1: or to, to may have discussions that are in furtherance
0: that's right. of, of a crime. That's right?
1: right. And and so this is a very interesting uh case. Um because you know, we report, well, first of all, Corcoran testified before the federal grand jury. Yep. We know that he was brought in. He invoked attorney client privilege over several questions, several discussions that he had with Donald Trump. Uh, We reported last week that Jack Smith is seeking to pierce that attorney-client privilege. We've talked about this, but we have more details now. uh, Because he's, as we know, we knew he was trying to use the crime fraud exception because the Department of Justice believes that Corcoran helped Trump obstruct justice. So here's the new details. Jack Smith wants to get answers Specifically focusing on a phone, fo- among other questions, a phone call that occurred between Evan Corcoran and Donald Trump on June twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, which just happens to be the same day they got a subpoena from the Department of Justice, for, you know, for, to the Trump Organization for those Mar-a-Lago surveillance tapes uh, and maybe more surveillance tapes, but we know for sure the Mar-a-Lago surveillance tapes, which as we later found out, showed people moving boxes, <laughs> including right. a guy named Walt Nada, not a good witness, <laughs> um, the Diet Coke valet, uh, who, who told that first told the DOJ, uh, I didn't move anything. And then they showed him the video. He was like, oh, yeah, I moved some stuff. And then he said, Trump told me to move that stuff. Uh, And that's again that that changing of his story is what makes him not a not a good (laughs)
0: witness.
1: (laughs) It never gets old. Dad joke of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to talk about with you, Andy, because you've been in these investigations before. When you want to pierce attorney-client privilege, or you want to get a phone, or you want to execute a search warrant, you got to have some evidence, Mm -hmm. Um, and you got to present that evidence to a judge. So how? did and how does Jack Smith know that this phone call took place? If it's a phone call between Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran, and I came up with four different scenarios. Okay. Uh, and, and help me out if, I, if I'm if i missing anything. So first of all, they could have gotten Corcoran's phone and maybe pursuant to a warrant. Uh, and we don't know uh, we might not know because the battle is under seal, although we've learned about a lot of these phone seizures. I feel like we would mm-hmm. know if his phone was seized.
0: So l- let me let me address that one first. I, I okay. think your instincts are right there. I think this is probably unlikely the way they know about the existence of the call. And the reason is, first of all, we probably would have heard about it. It definitely would have been a battle because anytime you take an attorney's phone, uh, you have all kinds of very legitimate attorney-client privilege issues to have to navigate. The other thing is the main reason to take the phone, as we discussed last week, is to get the text messages, uh, content that otherwise would have been encrypted if you'd gone to the service provider and asked for it. Uh, you can't get it so because it's encrypted. So you need the only way to get it in a decrypted, readable format is on the phone. However um the all jack smith needs to know is the existence the time and uh and date of this call to then drive at it in the grand jury questioning and that you could get um through a different means so give me your next one
1: yeah and i think i'm going to bring that up in the next one right because they could have gotten trump's just the phone records either through something called eight, title 18 us code 27 2703 which is also known as rule 2703 or just Trump's lawyers handed over the phone records and maybe a cooperative, you know, maybe Chris Kaiser or Jim Trusty walked in and said, let's be a little more cooperative today and handed over these phone records because they don't, the phone records don't include the content of the phone call. Uh, and so it's possible Trump's lawyers could have handed them over saying, well, if they ask about the content of the call, we'll just assert attorney-client privilege or, or whatever. But talk a little bit about uh, Rule twenty seven oh three because I've seen this come up a few times, and this basically allows the Department of Justice, with a warrant, mm-hmm. it would need evidence, to get somebody's phone records without notifying the person that they're getting their phone records.
0: That's right. So with the twenty seven oh three D order, that's that's where you know you can you serve an order on a service provider. So that's either going to be a phone company and you're seeking phone records, uh, metadata records, not actual content of phone call conversations, but just the the date, the time, the duration of the call and the numbers on both sides to, you know, who you're who made the call to who. Or you could serve that, here's another example on a service provider, uh, like an ISP, an internet service provider, like Google. Let's say you wanted that same sort of metadata about somebody's email account. You could get the same stuff. And the 2703 D order- that might
1: be how they got, sorry to interrupt, but that mm -hmm. might be how they got Eastman's emails because the DOJ got Eastman's Chapman University emails before January 6th committee fought over them for eight months in in the court. That's right. And
0: these are not controversial. You know, these are records that are held in the normal course of the service provider's business. Therefore, they are considered business records. And you don't have the same level of privacy, the same degree of of the same expectation of privacy in a business record as you would have over the actual content of your conversations or your text or email. So 2703 gets you that metadata, the tos and froms, the date, time, whatever, whatever. And it also can have with it a a non-disclosure requirement that prevents legally prevents the service provider from telling the target of this order Uh, That their records have been turned over.
1: Question for you Is there a way to get the content of phone conversations? Is that like a pen register through the FISC? Or, like, how do you? I don't even know if there was enough time or or if the DOJ was even thinking about anything like that when the subpoena went down. Because you and I have reported Mm -hmm. previously that the DOJ wanted to. Search. They they wanted to go search. And the FBI, some leadership at the FBI was like, let's do a subpoena first. And they did the subpoena first. And the FBI was reluctant. And that's Devlin Barrett reporting. So I'm not sure what the source is <laughs> big, there. Big
0: grain of salt um, there.
1: Yeah, grain of salt. But uh, I don't even know that it would have been... Um, but maybe it was. I mean, they they did the the prosecution, the DOJ really wanted to go in there and get these things. And so I don't know if they sought a, a, a pen register from the FISC and if that even uh, gets you the content of the phone calls.
0: So great question. It does not. A pen register gets you the same sort of information that we've just been talking about on the 2703D order, but it's live. So you're getting the date, the time, the duration, and the tos and froms on either an email account or a um, on a telephone uh, account as it's happening, which is very important, particularly when you're building up to the point that you would ask to go back in front of the court and ask for an order that would give you content. And that would have to be either a Title III order on the criminal side, which you would definitely have a pen register for some period of time before you asked for a Title III, um, because you want to show that, you know, listen, this target, he calls this guy every day, la, 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 that sort of thing. And on the, on the national security side, it would be in the FISA court. The only way to get the content of telephone calls is through a Title III order or a FISA order because it's, it has to be live. There's no service provider that's recording all of your phone calls and then can turn them over to the government after the fact.
1: Okay. So I hope everyone rests easy knowing that, <laughs> um, but uh, regardless of whether they went through a pen register in the FISC or whether they did a 2703 or whether they got these phone records from the Trump lawyers themselves, they would not have the content of that phone call. That's right. Um, and then they could have, the, here's another option, which I think might be the most likely, um, unless the Trump lawyers just handed over the the call records is whether or not a third party witnessed either end of that phone call. Uh, We know uh, now um, through some reporting that at least two dozen subpoenas have gone out to staffers, Mar-a-Lago staffers, aides, all the way up to Trump lawyers. And if, say, Christina Bob was in the room when Corcoran was on the phone with Trump, she could have testified to the DOJ, hey, I heard him say this. I heard him say that. They were talking about the surveillance subpoena. They were talking about moving records. They were talking. I'm speculating. I'm not. I don't know what took place in the call. But if she had an ear on one side of that phone call, much like many people had an ear on one side of the Pence-Trump phone call that's on right. January 6th, yep. and that's why D- Jack Smith is trying to get Pence to testify as to what he said on that phone call um then they would prop then they may be able to present evidence to the judge the chief judge which is now Bosberg to say hey our evidence we have developed evidence from a witness from witness testimony one or multiple that there are potential crimes in uh, furtherance of crimes in this conversation here's our evidence and they would submit that to the court to pierce the crime fraud or pierce the privilege with the crime-fraud exception.
0: Yeah, so that's a really interesting possibility and and here's why I think that's um, I can't say that that's what happened but it's a pretty good chance. So, let's go back to the crime-fraud exception. What you're tr- what you have to show to the judge is you're trying to pierce attorney-client privilege and force this attorney to answer questions about a specific conversation with his client. You have to show that you have evidence that that conversation you're trying to get to was actually in the commission or concealment of a crime. So if all you had was the metadata that Evan Corcoran called Donald Trump on such and such a day also happened to be the day that they received the subpoena, think about that. It's not unreasonable at all that you would have a conversation with your attorney on the day you received a very significant (laughs) subpoena. So- there's yeah. a very If that's all they have, I think it's a pretty weak case to go before a judge and ask to pierce the privilege. There's no um, assumption of, you know, malfeasance simply because the phone call took place. But if someone who is in sitting in Evan Corcoran's office and listening to his side of the conversation, and if let's go one step further and say that that person, that witness is a lawyer themselves... And, and could say, listen, I only heard half the conversation, but I heard Corcoran say X, Y, and Z. And to me, I, the sense that I got was they were, they were discussing ways to, you know, cheat the subpoena or hide the evidence or whatever. This is all speculation here. I'm just giving, using as an example. That would be powerful evidence in front of a federal judge to make the case that there was, um, you know, that that conversation contained evidence of commission of a crime.
1: Yeah, because with the Eastman emails and the crime fraud exception with the January 6th committee, they had to get the emails and then they have the content of the emails, So they don't have to get a witness testimony about what was said in those emails. And Judge Carter found that these conversations between Eastman and and people on, on, uh, you know, Trump allies um, were in the furtherance of a crime, specifically 371, which is uh, Title 18 conspiracy. And 1512C2, uh, uh, obstructing an official proceeding. So th- that's when we got that, you know, order from from the judge that Eastman would have to hand certain emails over to the January 6th committee. DOJ already had them all. Yep. So very, very interesting possibilities yeah, here.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: So that's, those are the ways i think that the doj uh could know because like you said if they only are going by because we've had some previous reporting saying that they're going by they're trying to pierce the attorney client privilege with information in their original search warrant affidavit and if there's nothing specific about this call in there and it's just that well obstruction was everywhere that day you know or that month, uh and they don't have any witness testimony corroborating that what was said on that phone call was a crime, I mean, you would really have to evaluate what was said to determine whether or not the crime fraud exception applies. If you can't determine what was said, it's going to be really an uphill battle for Jack Smith to get Uh, a crime fraud exception to be able to compel anyone to testify about what happened on that phone call.
0: That's one of the reasons why that privilege, the way you're supposed to invoke the privilege is question by question. So you're not supposed to say, oh, I have a privilege with this person, therefore I'm not going to show up for the grand jury uh, testimony. No, you have to show up, you get sworn in. And you assert the privilege to a specific or several specific questions. So that lets Smith and his investigators narrow in on the most important questions, the most important issues, where they think that the crime fraud exception might actually apply. We know that this is one that gets right to the heart of... The conversation between he and Trump on the day the subpoena was served, that's that's obviously super relevant. There are other questions that Corcoran refused to answer. For instance, his efforts to locate classified documents pursuant to the May subpoena, that's one that goes more broadly to Jack Smith's contempt motion, which hasn't been ruled on yet, and this question about how adequate was the search that they conducted and how did they mm-hmm. represent the results of that search.
1: Yeah, yeah, and some other... Um Interesting questions that he refused to answer due to attorney-client privilege was his role in drafting the letter Christina Bob signed, June third, uh, saying everything had been handed over. Which kind of leads me to believe, because we know Christina Bob has spoken to the Department of Justice. Yep. And and that's sort of why I'm really sort of stuck on this. Maybe Christina Bob heard that twenty for that June twenty fourth uh, conversation, which is a different subpoena. You know, the May subpoena is the one where they subpoenaed the classified documents. The June 24th subpoena was the surveillance tapes. Mm -hmm. So there were a few subpoenas involved here. Um, Also, he didn't want to talk about whether Trump or anyone else in his office knew uh, about Bob's certification letter. Like, did Trump know that you went to Bob and put this letter together? And also, he he didn't want to answer the questions about the reasons that Christina Bob wanted to edit the certification letter. And all of those questions really seemed to hinge on probably testimony that Christina Bob gave to the department.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's a lot of ground to cover here. Um, I think it's important to, to keep it in perspective that the this motion to pierce the privilege doesn't require... They're not required to prove the whole case. They're not required to prove that, you know, there was obstruction everywhere. It's simply on this question by question, issue by issue um, uh, kind of agenda whether or not there's evidence to believe that the specific conversations uh, involve the concealment or commission of a crime.
1: Yeah, and the standard is the preponderance of the evidence. That's right. It's more likely than not. Uh, like you said, you don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, as you would on trial, that that these crimes were committed. That is what Judge Carter uh, did in his Eastman email, Crime Fraud Exception Decisions saying, "Look, this is preponderance of the evidence. More likely than not, fifty point one percent that they uh, w- that these discussions were in furtherance of a crime. So it's a it's a lower standard than what you need to convict, but it's a higher standard than what you need to indict. Mm-hmm. So so we'll <laughs> yeah, we'll and- see how that goes. But it's also this is also a former president, so you, the 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 standard might in your just you know be ticked up a little bit."
0: Oh, there's no question. This is the, the repercussions of every decision in this case echo with like, what's, what does this say about our democratic process? What does this say about the way we treat former presidents? What does it say about the politicization of the Justice Department or the criminal justice process in general? So it's everything is more complicated here. Um, But I think we, you know, step back and remember also that if this decision or these decisions go against Trump, he still has avenues uh, to protect himself, right? If he's in fact uh, uh, indicted during the pretrial phase, he can fight any of the information that actually comes out of the answers given if the privilege is pierced, right? So he can he can file motions to exclude this evidence that was uh, that was collected through the grand jury testimony to keep it away from the eyes and ears of the jurors. In some case, yeah, motion in uh, limine,
1: right? That's to, right. To, so to, yeah.
0: it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the last time we'll hear people fighting in court over what does or does not happen here in this motion.
1: No, and all that's appealable. It's it, it's it's a long it's a long process. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. This is Alison Gill with breaking news. Chief Judge Beryl Howell has ruled in the Evan Corcoran crime fraud exception. She has sided with the Department of Defense saying that Jack Smith has provided enough evidence to pierce attorney client privilege and therefore Evan Corcoran must testify and answer the questions that he initially exerted and invoked attorney client privilege over because of the crime fraud exception. Now, Corcoran has a couple of options here. He can come in and testify, or the more likely scenario, he can appeal this decision, or he can come in and plead the fifth, in which case then the Department of Justice may grant him immunity. We will see. But I just wanted to give you that breaking news. Again, Judge Beryl Howe, on her last day as the chief judge of the D.C. District Court, in Colombo style, oh, sir, just one more thing, has ruled in favor of the Department of Justice and is compelling evan corcoran to testify because of the crime fraud exception that means that the department of justice was able to prove beyond a preponderance of the evidence more likely than not that he had committed or had his discussions with donald trump or the things he was trying to shield with attorney client privilege were actually in furtherance of a crime all right back to your regularly scheduled program there was one other attorney, by the way, that Jack Smith is trying to compel the testimony of to Pierce attorney-client privilege. That's somebody named Jennifer Little. I had not heard of her before. I had not she's, either. She's asserted attorney-client privilege. She's been she's been representing Trump in the Fulton County, Georgia matter. Uh, she did not respond to to request for comment for this story, uh, but um, he's trying to get her testimony as well. And that, again, maybe that's somebody who witnessed part of the call, or maybe that's somebody who witnessed something else but um you know he's really trying he's i think it's i haven't seen this kind of uh, crime fraud uh, exception being brought up to the the chief judge uh, like this but you know i'm new so
0: <laughs> hey <laughs> it's, listen it's pretty gutsy i did this stuff for 21 years and i'm not sure i ever dealt personally with a case in which the crime fraud exception was was used and succeeded. So it's very rare. Um, and I have to also imagine that this, this has got to have a chilling effect on Trump's potential uh, universe of lawyers. Like people are, <laughs> lawyers are getting roped into the grand jury right and left. Lawyers do not like that. They, do not, they don't want to be in the witness chair, really, under any circumstances. So um, this can't be making getting good legal advice any easier.
1: No, yeah, we just found out Tacopino today might have a conflict with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> which oh, gosh. It's fun. Uh, but that's for another show. Uh, spokesperson for Trump, by the way, said that, of course, President Trump has done nothing wrong. Radical Democrats continue to weaponize the justice system against President Trump, including in their attempts to demolish our Constitution, not by overthrowing the government, but by stripping away President Trump's right to counsel, because they... By the way, Trump is stripping away his own right to counsel, just like by how you said for (laughs) sending every single one of his lawyers to either the Bar Association or the chair, Uh, because they know he will win back at back. He will win back the White House as he leads both Republicans and Democrats by wide margins. Trump will not be deterred and will always continue to fight for the American people. This is the same uh, defense that we've seen brought up again and again. He's running for president. Therefore, it's political. That's the whole reason he's running for president. It's the whole reason he ran in 2020. Uh, was because he didn't want to face any of the crimes that he committed uh, in his previous administration. But anyway, that's uh, that's the Trump response. Nobody else uh, responded to requests for comment for this piece. So
0: got it, got it. Well, I mean, it's pretty pretty standard response and uh, one that we would expect. That's it's actually a little bit reined in from what we normally get from uh, It's A little less. Mm-hmm. Uh, less hyperbolic and uh hysterical and and you know fewer prophecies of doom and gloom so good for them maybe they're (laughs) maybe they're trying to normalize a little bit that'd be nice
1: yeah i doubt it but uh perhaps all right we'll see um we're gonna be right back we have one little story left here about boris epstein your favorite guy in the world everybody's favorite guy in the world apparently stick around we'll be right back All right, everybody, welcome back. The New York Times has some new reporting out on Trump attorney Boris Epstein. Let's just get through the main points of this story here. This is a Haberman joint, just you know, so you're aware. Um, first of all, Epstein speaks with Trump several times a day. He has massive access to Trump people, and uh, you know, in this article, people running for office have paid him upwards of six figures to just get. Him to talk to Trump for them so that Trump would endorse them all these candidates lost by the way But gave him like ninety thousand hundred thousand dollars because he has that much access to Donald Trump Um, He recommends and helps hire and negotiates the pay for several Trump lawyers Uh, But everybody really hates him. He's like the Ted Cruz of Trump attorneys his attack style grates on a lot of those around him so Nobody likes this guy
0: yeah. And, and, you know, he, I think he's a Georgetown law grad, if I have that correct. So he's definitely a lawyer, but I do think one of the concerns about him is he's never actually like practiced law. I don't think in a, in a significant way, he's really more of a political operative, which is great. That's his chosen uh, field. But, you know, you now have someone who is literally a kind of controlling quarterbacking the legal representation of not just a former president, but a former president who has massive legal problems coming at him from presumably like every direction and the kind of quarterback role coordinating all those different uh, efforts and the lawyers that you need to work with is a guy who really, you know, arguably doesn't have a lot of that big picture, strategic, huge case experience. Uh, It just, you know, it's just another indication that... um, the former president has a hard time kind of lining up the folks that he would need to navigate this stuff.
1: Well, here's something fun. Um, he, he's been a consultant to the Trump Save America PAC for a long time. And he has been paid as a consultant by the Trump Save America PAC. But recently, when all of this document stuff started happening, he ha- he, he, he retroactively called himself a lawyer. Uh, legally representing the Trump Save America mm-hmm. PAC, presumably so that anything that they talked about in the last, you know, <laughs> year and a half could be considered attorney-client privilege. He was also trying to uh, get Trump to sign a retroactive letter saying he's his attorney, but he dropped that effort. Um, and once he changed his role retroactively to the Save America PAC as legal representation, he doubled his monthly retainer from 15000 a month to $30,000 a month. Um, and so I don't know how that's going to sit with anybody trying to pierce attorney-client privilege with him uh, by saying you were a consultant, being paid as a consultant, and then all of a sudden saying, oh, no, 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 I was a lawyer. I've been a yeah. lawyer this whole time. Uh, that's. I mean, I guess there's really maybe not much you can do about that, but I found that to be... Very interesting.
0: Well, I mean, it didn't work for them in the Stormy Daniels case, which, of course, is still an ongoing thing. We don't know how that's going to resolve. But you'll remember in that case, um, Michael Cohen was reimbursed for making the payment, the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, was reimbursed like monthly or every couple of weeks Several of the checks signed by Trump himself, I think at least one signed by Don Jr. And then after the fact, they represented that that money was actually for legal services and that there was a retainer agreement as the basis for those transactions, all all of which was a lie and is now being exposed in the course of the ongoing Stormy Daniels suit. So the simple fact that he's going back and trying to call it something after the fact, if that's what's happening here with Epstein, um, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work or protect him in a significant way.
1: Could be a falsification of business records, but I don't know how they would rule on the attorney-client privilege. We will probably find out. Um, Now, here's another fun fact. Even though Epstein's phone was seized by the Department of Justice, which means you have to have at least some probable cause of a crime, (laughs) uh, Parla who's another lawyer, says, Absent any solid indication that Boris is a target here, I don't think this affects us. It seems to me like having your phone confiscated is a pretty solid indication that you might be in
0: trouble. It's certainly affecting you. I mean, at least the day they take your phone, you got no phone left. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if they thought that, that Epstein was absolutely, purely, no question, just a witness you wouldn't even be hearing about this stuff because like witnesses turn their phones over consensually to the government most of the time <laughs> uh, to be, you know, to have the evidence to, looked at or removed or whatever, then they just go on their way. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's very clearly uh, in the crosshairs of the investigation. So- uh, what's well, well,
1: like the phone call with Corcoran, right? If there was nothing in furtherance of a crime, just tell us what you said. Like, just <laughs> just testify to it. Uh, But, you know, there's always wanting to bring up the attorney-client privilege. Of course. Uh, There's a long list of stuff that uh, Epstein's being criminally investigated for. First of all, his work with Rudy Giuliani on assembling the false slates of electors, right? That's the obstructing an official proceeding case. He also testified before the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury. He testified there. Uh, He's being investigated for improperly seeking a common interest agreement among witnesses in the classified documents case. Uh, Andy, what is a common interest agreement?
0: Well, a common interest agreement. Um, we've talked about joint defense agreements between people who are uh, who are all accused of committing crimes together. Sometimes they sign these joint agreements so that they can share information without uh, destroying their attorney-client privilege. In a in a situation where the agreement was between people who were witnesses, not actually defendants or or people charged with crimes. That would be referred to as a common interest agreement among witnesses. So it's kind of the same thing. Uh, It's an agreement so that you can exchange information without losing the privilege that you hold with your own attorney.
1: And what would make it improper if you're like suborning perjury or if you're pressuring those witnesses? I mean, what would make it illegal? because that's what they say here is that improperly seeking a common interest agreement among witnesses?
0: So it would be fine to do that if you were all witnesses. Let's say it was a, you were all employees of a corporation, and the corporation's now the subject of a federal criminal uh, probe, and uh, you had to go out and get attorneys because you work in the company. you're not nobody suspects you of wrongdoing. It would be easier and probably more economical to have your attorney sharing information with each other. So you, would, you, would, you could have a uh, common interest agreement there. What's not proper is if you use the common interest agreement as a means of exerting uh, coercing or exerting pressure over different witnesses to only cooperate on certain things or only provide certain information or even just to keep track of what other witnesses are doing you can't, as an attorney, you cannot try to control the um, representation of other people's clients. That's that's basically would be outside the uh, acceptable parameters for a common interest agreement.
1: Well, most of these lawyers were paid by the Save America PAC. Uh, that's also in, in here, so maybe that's it. Um, and finally, he's being investigated for his role in managing a pro-Trump crypto firm with Steve Bannon in the Southern <laughs> District of New York. So, you know, I mean...
0: Why not? Well, why not? I mean, you that's like the icing <laughs> on the cake, I guess. Um, you know, I, we always say you got to lead from the front. You got to always be, if you want to be a successful leader, you have to be willing to do the work that you're asking your subordinates to do. And maybe, I'm trying to see the bright side here, maybe that's what Epstein is all about. He's like, hey- Come on board, help represent Trump, and I know you're probably going to end up in front of the grand jury or subject of investigation. But I'm doing it too. All right, I'm already (laughs) subject of all these investigations, and I've already testified in front of a grand jury. So tell you what, it
1: makes you feel better, I'll go commit some more crimes. (laughs) That's right. We're all in the same boat, and
0: then we could sign a uh, you know a common interest (laughs) agreement, and I can then stop you from actually testifying. I don't know. I'm just making a bunch of money
1: from the Save America PAC and Mark Meadows nonprofit organization, and you have a job, and you can get a job too. And why don't you go testify? the weaponization committee that's yeah. cool yeah um, yeah it's just a big cluster it's as, a mess uh, yeah, yeah it's you, a total mess if you look mess. at it uh, alright thank you so much for going over all the good Boris Epstein news what a what a what a peach he is <laughs> um, the Ted Cruz of Trump lawyers I think is the is the, the yeah when you're that the, that the Ted Cruz of
0: anything you're in a bad place Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't really. ever want to hear your friends say he's like the Ted Cruz of pickleball no you don't want that <laughs>
1: the Ted so Pickleball, <laughs> the- we have our title for the episode. <laughs> <It's->
0: <laughs> it took That's us the it. whole episode to get to it, but we got there eventually. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be uh. Ted Cruz of Pickleball. We have a
1: listener, a listener question we want to answer this week before we get out of here.
0: Yeah, we do. And I'm, I'm going to throw in two. They're both very quick, uh, but I thought they were both great. Okay. So the first one is from Christy. And Christy says, we've been hearing a lot about how Trump could run for office from prison because of how hard it is to disqualify a candidate. It just seems like the DOJ would bump up against some constitutional concerns if they tried to prevent an otherwise qualified candidate from running. Give me some good news, guys. Okay. So- um, yeah, so this comes out of, we talked last week about one of the possible resolutions of a federal indictment against Trump might be, and I say might, it's just like one of many possibilities, you could imagine a plea bargain situation in which... The government offered to allow him to plead guilty to, let's say, an offense that didn't carry a prison sentence, but in return, they would require him to refrain from ever running for federal office again. It's kind of similar to what happened in the Spiro Agnew situation many years ago. So those kinds of arrangements are essentially a contract. And like every contract, they are predicated on offer and acceptance. So no, I don't think an offer like that would have a constitutional issue of course, Trump wouldn't have to agree to it. But part of the agreement, if he agreed to do that, uh, any plea agreement for whatever the terms are, uh, always includes the fact that the defendant will not challenge the efficacy of the plea, will not appeal the result of the plea. It just ends the entire process never to be brought up again. And it imposes conditions on both sides.
1: I concur. I don't don't really have anything to to add to that one, other than you know, you you're thinking exactly what I was thinking is yep. when you enter into that plea agreement, that's just the way it is. However, yeah. his indictment and potential conviction does not bar him from running for office. It does not bar him from being president if he gets indicted, and ends up getting maybe home arrest, no prison time because of you know, um, secret service concerns or security concerns, yeah. or if he gets a, a short prison sentence or. If he gets a prison sentence that anybody else would be given, which if all the the crimes add up, maybe like four to eight years, something like that, um, potentially more, he doesn't have to not run for president. Uh, I don't see him winning. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you never know. Didn't see him winning the
0: first time, but okay. And
1: once he's indicted, um, he can't. I I think he would have a really hard time bringing up, uh, you know, if he if he ran and won somehow. I think in his trial was still going on. I think he would have a really hard time uh, trying to say you have to drop the whole case because I'm president now. I think one, uh, you know. Yeah, I I think he's already been defending himself. Yeah, Uh, it it wasn't something that happened while he was president, which is hence the DOJ, you know, memo saying you can't. That's right. a sitting president. That's right. So. All right. Those are my thoughts.
0: Got it. So, okay, last question and then we'll wrap this up. This one comes to us from Madeline. Madeline says, thank you both so much for doing this. I just want to comment on the closing note of the most recent podcast. You said there's very little chance the, and I'll quote her here, orange liar, like Colbert, I can't say his name, likely won't see the inside of a jail cell. That's not right. Accountability needs to go beyond indictment and you end with the sound of a jail slamming. That gets our hopes up, Madeline. So, Madeline, you're not going to like my answer on this one, but- um, I
1: agree." but yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just, so obviously we're, you know, we were working through the options here with you, different ways that, that uh, his situation might resolve, but it's important to remember as much as we focus on this and where it's going and what might happen, we have to always rely on and believe in the system of criminal justice. I know it is flawed. It has some serious problems, um, but over, but it, it works overall every day in many different ways. And that system does not work for any defendant by beginning with the presumption that we want to hear the jail cell slam. It's the same reason why it was offensive and weird to hear people screaming, lock her up about Hillary Clinton years ago. Like that's not who we are. And when we think there is probable cause to believe a crime is committed, people then have to answer for those charges. They're innocent until proven guilty in court. And we don't just like, you know, stand there pounding torches on the ground demanding uh, the head of the accused. That's not um, what we do in this country, thank God. And um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Trump and the way the whole process resolves is perfectly reasonable to have strong feelings about what you'd like to see happen. But at the end of the day, we all have to be confident that the process will work in the same way that it does for everybody else.
1: But if he is convicted, um, I'm just going to push back a tad on this. Mm -hmm. If he is convicted, um, I would want to see the same sentencing guidelines used that would be used on anyone else. And while I fear that there might be some special considerations made because he is a former president, there might be security considerations and all that other stuff, my personal preference would be that he is treated as any other person who would, who has, who would have who committed these crimes, if he's convicted by a jury. And I think that I'm going to maybe go out on a limb here and say, you know, I, I've been worried about that. But I'm going to say, hearing Garland's remarks, the thing that he says the most, because he never talks about anything except, you know, a handful of things is how important it is that people are treated alike regardless of rich poor black white uh those with means those without means yep that has been very very central to the tenet that he brings to the justice department uh and i i'm not sure i'm i'll I'm, we'll have to ask um but i'm pretty sure it would be the special counsel in this case jack smith who would be making the sentencing recommendations and Making those agreements and, and and things like that, although I imagine the attorney general would be involved, uh, but he's 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 taken a real hands off approach here. And I Jack Smith might not be as kind as uh, as a Merrick Garland, uh, or or even anybody else, any other attorney general. We'll have to see how it happens. But I you know given the over and over again speeches, knowing what's coming, knowing the crimes that he's having to look at, Merrick Garland saying. We have to treat like crimes alike, and we can't be disparate in our treatment uh, of criminals. We'll see what happens, but maybe not.
0: I think that's absolutely right. And it's absolutely essential that at this phase, the investigative phase and the considering the indictment phase, no, you're right. No, Nobody is different. It's the facts and the law, period. But if it goes to trial and, he, and there is a conviction, now you're in the sentencing phase, And the sentencing phase, as you said, should start as everyone does with the sentencing guidelines that are a part of our uh, a part of our federal law. After that, each case, there are individual uh, concerns There are mitigating and aggravating factors that are that are considered in the decision of the court, not DOJ, but of the judge when imposing sentence, you know. The, those factors for someone who is a former president of the United States are going to be a little bit different than anybody else. That doesn't mean that, oh, he's getting special treatment. It just means that his mitigating and aggravating factors are distinct to him as everybody should be distinct to well, theirs. It's and a lot it's like impossible. how we have
1: to – we can't – it's a lot like we can't treat him the same because he does have some executive – perhaps executive privilege claim. Yeah. But- Or uh, presidential records claim or declassification ability. Like there are things that you have to consider because he's president legally would have an impact. And I think that that happens too in the sentencing, right? You
0: start with the guidelines for what you were convicted with, and that gives you basically the range. And then from there, the judge has to use some discretion and decide where to land in that range. You know, that is many, that is a long way down the road of this process, but- um,
1: Right, because I think you're mostly talking about a pre-trial sort of agreement, a settlement, right? Not necessarily if he, after he's convicted, but before yeah. we even go to trial, there may be some sort of a, That's hey, the, you don't run for president, move to Moscow. Right. Uh, we don't want to see you again, and we'll, you know-
0: That's the only this. time something like that could be done, before after you've been charged- then you you know you have these lawyers have discussions with the prosecutors about you know resolving the case through plea bargain could not happen after you you show up for the first day of trial and decide okay now I'm going to plead guilty you basically eat the indictment that's what we say in the in the system there's no there's no bargaining there's no favor for doing that
1: yeah I think it's in good hands though if it's Jack Smith who's yeah. making these decisions I agree I, again he's a bulldog dude he's I don't see him. I I have faith in the decision that he makes will will be the probably the harshest punishment we would be able to see, it if prob- that makes sense. It
0: could be. It could be. But I'll tell you, I have a lot of faith that he's professional. He's got a proven track record. I have faith in the system and the judges um, and the prosecutors, the professional prosecutors at DOJ. It's not as much as some people still, you know, really don't believe this. It's not a right, left, red, blue Republican Democrat thing. Um, the law is the law. The facts are the facts. You apply them and and see where it lands. That's that's the way it goes.
1: Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much for those questions. If you have any questions, you can send them to us at hello at mullersherote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. That's the best way to get a hold of us to ask your questions. We appreciate you submitting them. Um, I this has been a, a heck of a week, and I don't see the news slowing down anytime soon, my <laughs> friend. So thank you for. For taking the time today. I know you're on the road, and um, we will be back next week. I've been Allison Gill.
0: And I'm Andy McCabe.
1: You're listening to Jack. <laughs> MSW Media.